0: begins with the following two verses. I look up at your heavens, shaped by your fingers. At the moon and the stars you set firm. What are human beings that you spare a thought for them? Or the child of Adam that you care for him? Yet you have made him little less than a god. You have crowned him with glory and beauty. Made him lord of the works of your hands. Put all things under his feet. That's the psalmist. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. The just-quoted psalm is surely not the only time we find a biblical author marveling at the mystery of man, wondering as to what exactly the human person is and why it is that God the Creator would pay us a moment's notice. And surely it isn't just the authors of sacred scripture that have done so. Throughout the ages, philosophers, poets, playwrights, comedians all have ruminated over what exactly we are and why it is that we are so like the other animals, yet, how it is also the case that there are aspects of our nature that are radically beyond these other creatures. The Catechism does a pretty good job of summing up a particularly Catholic understanding of our nature as embodied persons when it says, The human person created in the image of God, is a being at once corporeal and spiritual. The human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul, and it is the whole human person that is intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the Spirit. Man, though made of body and soul, is a unity. Through his very bodily condition, he sums up in himself the elements of the material world. Through him, they are thus brought to their highest perfection and can raise their voice in praise freely given to the Creator. The unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body. That is, it is because of its spiritual soul that the body, made of matter, becomes a living, human body. Spirit and matter in man are not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. So that's parts of the Catechism, Numbers 362, 364, and 365. And this last stuff on form and matter, soul and body, needs some explanation. We have here terms originating in a particular time and place, and philosophical milieu, namely Greco-Roman antiquity, that have also been incorporated into the Catholic intellectual tradition. Many will quickly associate these terms with the sacraments, and rightfully so, but in today's episode we are going to consider these terms in their broader and more general conceptual environment, as ideas used to describe the natural world as such, and the human person as part of that world. My guest today, on board to discuss all of this in expert fashion, is Thomas Ward. Tom is a professor of philosophy at Baylor University and has degrees in philosophy and theology from UCLA and Oxford, respectively. Interestingly, he is presently working on a number of projects, including a book about how to teach virtue concepts to children, An Accessible Introduction to the Thought of John Duns Scotus, and a few books on philosophy and fantasy for children. I very much encourage you to drop down into today's show notes. You'll see there are links to Tom's website where you can find a slew of interesting items, including essays, shorter blog posts, video commentaries, and links that take you to other avenues for encountering Tom and his work. His doctoral dissertation was written on the topic we discuss in today's episode, namely the thought of John Duns Scotus on the topic of hylomorphism, which is a longish word that might seem cumbersome to some, but in reality is a conceptual framework that has informed much of Catholic thinking over the centuries. So let's consider hylomorphism, the nature of the human person, Christ in the tomb, the identity of relics of the saints, so, so much. Here's Tom starting us off. I think like many people who get really
1: interested in medieval philosophy, my first love was definitely St. Thomas Aquinas. And and he continues to be... uh, one of my very favorite theologians and, and philosophers. Uh, but during my PhD studies, I've I started. I was forced to read other people in the tradition and realized that as great a genius as Aquinas is, he was working in a context of a lot of other bright lights. And my first draw to Scotus is actually not to SCOTUS in particular, is actually not very interesting. I mean, I, I was fishing for a dissertation topic, and I was really interested in hylomorphism in the Middle Ages, starting from Aquinas and branching out from there. Uh, but it was really just in the in the context of searching for a good dissertation topic that I started reading SCOTUS, and there was enough there. And I know we'll talk about this uh, over the next hour or so, but there's enough there that made me think, yeah, this is really interesting. And so it was kind of an odd place to begin SCOTUS studies you know, on a very narrow topic in his natural philosophy. But uh, it was the hook that really drew me in. And as I've branched out and uh, studied other topics, I find SCOTUS just continually a a source of inspiration. He's he's always 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 brilliant. Sometimes uh, counterproductively so, uh, because he can get caught up in these little niceties, and it's not clear where he's going. And uh, the texts themselves of Scotus are are in a bad way. He just didn't finish a lot of what he started, so it can be really demoralizing to to read a lot. Of, of scotus but that aside he was such a creative sharp and ultimately i think pious uh, christian thinker uh that for me whether it's uh on the natural law or on arguments for god's existence or the hylomorphism stuff it's just always incredibly stimulating and repays the effort it takes to to follow along and, and for at this point we're going, I'm going on a 15 year, uh, bromance with, uh, <laughs> Duns SCOTUS. And I, I, I have to say, I don't, I don't see, I don't see it cooling off anytime soon. Um, but I, but because like we were talking about before, because SCOTUS uh, is often either maligned or neglected in Catholic circles, one, burden i feel is to uh contribute to the kind of literature that would help people who aren't already scholars of the middle ages to approach scotus so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: i'm trying to work on this uh introductory level book on scotus we'll see what comes of that i know that sister mary beth ingham has produced a couple books like that and they're really valuable i think there's there's room for more stuff like that because uh he is he is a formidable, intimidating thinker, but I think if you could kind of distill the ideas in a way that uh, is more streamlined than his texts themselves, then he could really be an attractive figure for a lot of Catholics.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I, I've read her uh, sister Marybeth's uh, *Scotus for Dunces*, which is a great, you know, entree into uh, his thinking. And I was speaking with her a couple weeks ago, and one of her main content we're well not contentious but the way that she said she began to understand Scotus was um, that she thinks his work uh, emanates from a, a deep experience of beauty hmm. and that you can't divorce him from his Franciscanness his Franciscan uh, charism um, so she thinks that a lot of people get him wrong because they you know divorce him from that Catholic Franciscan, environment within he which within which he was working so he, he could never be like the voluntarist that he gets um mistaken as um if you keep that in mind so but i think an introductory text we need more so that's great i'm glad to hear you're working on that that's a
1: good word about scotus uh, scotus's franciscanism i mean i i do think it's pervasive it's not it's not explicit but it's pervasive
0: mm-hmm.
1: um just a really quick example i was reading uh scotus on the virtues a couple of weeks ago and it was actually the first time that i'd read this section on uh scotus on on fortitude mm. courage and he argues there that uh patience bearing suffering uh is actually the noblest form of courage just mm. being willing to endure hard treatment without without that you know that spirit that rises up in your chest and gets vindictive and wants to pay mm. back just to be able to bear suffering uh, peacefully. And I thought he's, he's learned this from the life of St. Francis. I mean, this mm. is what uh, Francis is willing to willingness to endure persecution, to suffer hardship uh, at the, at, at others, uh, suffer hard treatment from other people and to just bear it joyfully uh, there's something about the life of Saint Francis i'm convinced that just so inspired Scotus that even when it came to to fortitude or, or courage, he saw Francis as a kind of exemplar
0: yeah, that's fascinating also reminds me a little bit of Bonaventure in that in that way. Mm. You used a couple words earlier that we'll definitely have we're definitely going to talk about at length, but maybe just to introduce them because they're less commonly known, but um, the first was hylomorphism which uh, is a great word, but it might sound like a, um, a, a biological species at first to some people, um, <laughs> and then natural philosophy. Um, so how would you describe hylomorphism in general to someone completely unaware of its, um, its inner workings?
1: Uh, in the most general sense, hylomorphism is the name of a theory about what material objects are. And the word is a, is a composite of two Greek words uh, that basically means uh, matter formism. Yeah, so we have uh, heil, which is, or hule, which is matter stuff, uh, literally, originally like timber, you know, the kind of raw materials that you'd build a house out of. And then morphe, uh, the form of a thing. So, hy- hylomorphism is the idea that material objects, you know, uh, an animal, a mineral, a plant, uh, even a human being, though human beings, as we'll talk about later, are a special case, uh, all these material objects are not reducible to their material stuff. That in addition to the matter these things are all made of, they have a special specific form that is uh peculiar to the kind of thing something is so an oak tree for example would have all of the material parts that it shares with just about everything else in our cosmos but it would have in addition to those material parts the form of an oak tree and a dog would have material plus the form of a dog human beings Material plus the form of human and so on Mm -hmm. So that's that's the theory at its most basic level and you think well, why I think something like that? Well, it's It's actually kind of disarmingly Intuitive when you think of the following kind of problem Uh, Whether you're thinking of matter in a older ancient medieval sort of way or in a more contemporary sort of way informed by physics and chemistry, the basic material components of things in the world are, are actual, is actually not very complex uh, in terms of the fundamental kinds of things there are, uh, whether at the purely physical level or at the chemical level, the, the stuff that composes the things that we encounter in the world uh, is actually fairly similar from thing to thing. And yet we find, uh, the overall structure, the forms of life, uh, around us to be incredibly diverse. So despite the fact that we're all made of basically the same stuff, different kinds of things are really are very, very different from each other. What explains this? Well, for the hylomorphist, the person who believes in hylomorphism, uh, he will say, well, it's form form explains this difference and you can't reduce the form of a thing just to its matter. uh, Lest you lose the very subject matter you're trying to, you're trying to explain the wide variety of things coming in different kinds in one sense, all neatly organized. uh, And then the very different kinds that there are. So, there's a kind of organization. Things come in kinds, and then there's a, a widespread differentiation. There are lots of different kinds, and hy- hylomorphism, I think nicely accounts for those two facts.
0: And, and there's there's so much. I mean, this is such a. I mean, once you know one views reality in this way, the implications of it are so wide ranging and deep. Um, I'm even just thinking as you're describing it. Right, it, this helps us describe how. Um, you know a b and c are three individual things in the, in their own right but they're of the same kind right we can start to think about individuals within the species and yet they're they're, they're same enough that we could use uh, a similar term the same term for them and yet see them all as individuals um, and it, it, your explanation of it just made me maybe me think of of that the the pervasiveness and and how this really is a a nice conceptual framework within which one can view, um, the natural world. Um, but you mentioned earlier, um, that the human being is, is its own specific case. So how would a a hylomorphist view, uh, the human person?
1: The complication here in a lot of ways brings us up against various theological issues, but, uh, one doesn't have to go there to, think of how hylomorphism as applied to human beings might be a little peculiar um, the basic thought is that hylum, uh, is that human human beings in one sense are one kind of animal among many you know, we uh we have our classification in a, a taxonomy of the kinds of living things there are uh and that's that's fairly straightforward But then we have these powers that seem to be unique to us, rationality and freedom, intellect and will in the scholastic jargon. Now, so what what about us accounts for these sorts of powers? And for many hylomorphists in the Middle Ages, they thought that If hylomorphism is an appropriate way to describe human beings, the kind of form that a human has has to be a rather special kind of form. It's not like the form of any other living thing. One, it carries along with it these powers of intellect and will. But precisely because of it endowing a human being with the power of intellect, it was held to... Uh, By many people, it was held to have a kind of independent status that made it possible for it to exist all by itself and not only as the form of some matter or other. There's something about rational activity, and and in particular, uh, the fact that rationality is in part a power to apprehend a universal that suggested to many medieval thinkers that rational activity as such could not be a purely material activity. But if it's not a purely material activity, then why suppose that the human substantial form or soul, as they called it, why suppose that that's the kind of thing that needs a body to exist? So, the peculiarity or uniqueness of the human form is that, although it really functions as the form of a living thing, and so in that sense is naturally uh, wedded to matter, it's not absolutely necessary that that very form exist in matter for it to exist. And this has obvious payoff for a Christian understanding of the afterlife. Uh, where we think uh, there's something about us that is immortal by nature. Uh, Let's say that it's our soul, which can somehow survive the death of our physical organism, at least for some period of time. So that's where the human substantial form would be rather different from say the substantial form of an oak tree
0: or a dog. Right. And at this point, I think it's really helpful, you know, to consider, you know, the period of Aquinas, the period of Bonaventure, Scotus, all of these vibrant, energetic thinkers, and and hopefully dispel this impression that the Middle Ages, whatever that was, is this monolithic sort of stagnant period of uh, intellectual authoritarianism or rigorism or, you know, um, dogmatism, Um, and really I mean, that, that's so false, right? It's, it's a dynamic period of an encounter. You know, you have Aristotle coming back into contact with the West. You have Arabic thinkers and commentators uh, being read and commented upon and, and um, in, in some ways, I guess, appropriated by someone like Aquinas. So this period is, again, energetic, vibrant. I think it's fascinating to look at the debates at this time. Um, and substantial form and hylomorphism and the theological issues that attended um, these con- concepts. Uh, this was a, just a germane period, right? Absolutely. And, and the way in which uh,
1: philosophy happened, not just in spite of the faith commitments and theological activity of these great thinkers, but, but because of their theological commitments, uh, what we find in the middle ages is philosophical creativity philosophical innovation being driven by uh this faith seeking understanding mentality where the 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 inheritance of the faith is something that was non-negotiable for them but rather than just letting that uh as you put it sort of sit monolithically and do nothing it it sparked a, it sparked that philosophical Creativity, and it's—I uh, mean, even—even even where the—even uh, where we might look at activities of the church as as heavy-handed or authoritarian, even these had really fruitful effects on philosophy. I'm thinking specifically here of Bishop Tompier's condemnation of various uh, articles, various uh, propositions which were trendy. Uh, at Paris in the 1270s, and in 1277, he issued a a list of condemned propositions. Uh, we ha- scholars haven't been able to trace uh, who was saying each and every one of these, but it was it was clearly meant to uh, go after a, d- a diverse range of thinkers, not any one thinker. Uh, but what we find is at, in the post 1277 condemnation world, uh, we find an incredible focus on uh, thinking through the philosophical implications of God's omnipotence. Because the general gist of these condemnations was uh, to try to reassert God's freedom, God's sovereignty, in the light of uh, all of this Aristotelian Conceptual machinery that had gained such a huge foothold in European thought, a lot of which, though, was uh, deterministic or necessitarian, and so seemed to put constraints on what God could or couldn't do that were thought by many people to be impious. Uh, So, 1277 tried to reassert this divine freedom, and so later thinkers. Duns Scotus, I think, would be one of the great representatives of this uh, response. While still thinking in Aristotelian terminology, vocabulary, concepts, uh, they nevertheless sought to assert God's primacy over nature. And the result of that was, I mean, and it's and it's most cynical. You could see these post 1277 thinkers as using divine omnipotence as a kind of uh thought experiment generating trope right where it's like well if if god's omnipotence can be characterized as god's ability to do anything that's logically possible well maybe that that really fires the the philosophical imagination well what is really logically possible logically possible and so you get a lot of wacky uh a wild theses about what might or might not be possible and so on, but some of which I think were, uh, were on the right track, some of which I think were not on the right track, but the point is that there's a, this philosophical ferment that happens out of the, the theological condemnations of 1277.
0: It's interesting, you know, early 13th century, the debate over substantial form is of a certain kind and it develops uh, over a couple of decades. And it's not that, I don't want to say it's not that consequential early on, but it doesn't seem to be hotly contested. And then it seems like Aquinas' unicity of substantial form changes things a bit, right? Not that he appears out of nowhere, um, mm-hmm. but to hold that there's only one truly only one substantial form for the human person. It's the rational soul. And the thinking through of the theological implications of that, that seems to really uh, light a spark at least, right? For um, for debate such that the, the later uh, 13th century debate and onward seems to be a, at a higher pitch than maybe the early debates over how the embryo developed and when the soul was infused and all. So, I guess that's a long way of asking. You know, why does? What are the theological concerns over certain types of hylomorphist accounts?
1: Good. Yeah, you mentioned Aquinas's unicity view. Um, that that might bear some unpacking. So, so as <laughs> as you know, the, the the basic debate in medieval hylomorphism was whether uh, a human being, though it it had ramifications to other hylomorphic organisms as well. But whether a human being was composed of matter and only one substantial form, or matter and more than one substantial form, and if more than one, how many more? So to be a, a unicity theorist uh, would would involve holding that there's just one unique. Substantial form of a human being and someone like Aquinas was really Interested committed to defending the unicity theorist theory because he thought that uh, only by supposing One substantial form could you account for The organic unity of a human being Uh, He was very concerned with uh, Avoiding any possibility of a kind of reduction of organisms, including human beings to their basic material elemental components, and the thought was that if if a human organism was somehow a, a, a compound of several different substances all at once, that those substances together would lack the kind of organic unity that uh organisms seem to have what would really be going on you know despite appearances is that the fundamental thing is the elemental components uh of the human being and not the human being as such so uh, and aquinas was fully aware of what he was signing on to when he held Mm -hmm. this thesis i mean just to give a quick example Uh, medieval chemistry was very different from our own they believed in you know four elements earth wire earth earth air fire and water and thought that all material substances were in some sense um, like the matter of things was some sort of mixture of these four elements you think well is there water in me right now like that seems kind of intuitively true yeah there's water in me because like when i sweat it's water that comes out of me and Surely it was water when it was in me. But if you're a unicity theorist, you have to be willing to deny that there is water in you right now. And Aquinas was fully willing to deny that. There is no water, no air, no fire, no earth. Uh, All of these elemental components, when they are organized into a human body, they literally, into a human organism, they literally cease to exist. And one substance, the human being, comes to be from those elemental natures. Uh, so Aquinas is very interested in preserving the non-reducibility of a human being. But as many people pointed out, it's this Unicity theory seemed to spell trouble for various theological commitments, and one of the main ones had to do with how we should understand the death of Christ, Christ in the tomb. Mm-hmm. So, death—the death of a human being on this hylomorphic view—has uh, to involve, in some way or other, the separation of matter and form, right? The the form of a human being, its soul, at death, that soul is separated from matter, either to go on existing in some other state, or to cease to exist. But separation from matter is what death is, on this hylomorphist view. And of course, Christians are committed to the uh, the idea that Christ really died on the cross, which means that his human soul really was separated from his matter. Okay, so Christ dies, he's placed in the tomb, his body is anointed, his body is wrapped, and so on. And and it looks like it was totally appropriate for his disciples to reverence his body for the three days during which Christ was dead. But notice that on the unicity view, it's really not clear how we can call that body in the tomb the body of Christ, because or or it's not it's and it's not even clear that we can call it the thing that was the body of Christ when Christ was alive, and this is because on the unicity theory there's just one substantial form that accounts for the entire unique structure configuration of the human organism. And so on a view like Aquinas this would include the particular shape, the particular qualities, the particular organization of the organic parts of the human body and not just like the consciousness, uh, of the, of the person. So what makes, uh, a body into a human body is the presence of a human substantial form on Aquinas's view. So remove that form, you thereby cease to have a human body. You have something else that comes, that is generated out of the corruption of that human being. So then what you have there in the tomb on the unicity theory is not the body of Christ. You have something else, something that comes to be out of the death of Christ. And in that case, it's not as clear that reverence uh, is that it's appropriate to give such a thing reverence. So then many people in the late 13th century were inspired to hold some sort of pluralist view about substantial form. And the most simple, the most straightforward way to be a pluralist about substantial form is to hold that there's one kind of form by which uh, a human body has its distinctive configuration and another second substantial form by which a human being is alive and has the distinctive uh, powers of a human being, rationality, and will. So then we when we try to explain Christ's death and the appropriateness of veneration of Christ's dead body, we could say, yes, Christ indeed has died. Uh, His rational soul is separated from his body. But what remains is exactly the same body that existed while Christ was alive. And what resurrection involves, not only for Christ, but in some sense, even for uh, any other human being, what resurrection involves is Christ's soul revivifying that very body. So it really is the case on the pluralist view that when Christ's body was in the tomb, it really was Christ's body. It really was appropriate to venerate it uh, and and so on. So I th- that's a long answer, but I think <laughs> that would be one of the, the most powerful theological implications of this debate between unicity theorists and pluralists about substantial form
0: yeah no that's great that's a great way of explaining it and um, while you were doing so it even made me think of the remains of um, the saints the you know relics was another question right so if i'm a pluralist i can at least say that if there's enough of integrity left you know that really is saint john vianney's heart right
1: exactly Uh, Exactly.
0: otherwise if i can't if i'm a you know if I'm convinced of the unicity theory, then I, I can't do that. Um, that's right. And like you said, I might not even be able to say that that was once Vianney's heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be so much more convoluted. And, and it is interesting with Aquinas how he's very sensitive to how we speak of things. And that's to his credit, right? You know, um, even thinking of the separated soul, he might say, yes, we, we pray to St. Peter now, but that soul truly isn't Peter. we're just using the name for the whole for a part. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, So, so where does SCOTUS fit exactly within this whole thing then? Um, On that particular question? Or or just the whole, the whole um, landscape really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So SCOTUS is a pluralist about substantial form, but he has a, a, a pretty distinctive take on pluralism. He's not the only one in the period to have thought this, uh, or even the first, but I think works it out in a more sophisticated way than probably anyone else. But SCOTUS actually thought that different body parts could have their own substantial form and so be their own substances. So it's a kind of further complexification of the pluralist view, rather than having just one substantial form of the body and then a second substantial form, which is the soul. Scotus would hold that the body is itself a kind of uh, complex of substances. And the human form Mm -hmm. is the one soul, which unites all of these into uh, a truly singular organic unity. So at death, you might still have these, components stuck together and so looking one but they don't have that functional unity they had while they were while they were alive nevertheless you could still continue to identify them as the very parts they always were so you mentioned the the case of of relics and a particular uh you know uncorrupted well i guess uncorrupted relics would be a different sort of case, but just relics of, uh, of body parts rather than say whole bodies. <laughs> now on the, on the simple pluralist view, like were where you have just two. Well, is St. John Vianney's heart, his very heart on the, on the simple pluralist view. Mm-hmm. And, I would have to think about it a bit, but, but at the very least, we could say that Scotus's view gives us a much more straightforward answer to that question. Yes, it is. Because all along from the time that uh, uh, the heart developed in utero, it was St. John Vianney's heart. And it, 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 it is the very heart that Saint John Vianney had that pumped his blood. It's that very heart. So now that now that the saint is dead, that heart remains, and we can uh, we can attitudes like veneration are more appropriate given that it it was that very object that pumped blood through that man. Uh, so that's a nice payoff. That's not de- <laughs> that's not decisive. For SCOTUS's right. view, but that is a nice payoff. Also, SCOTUS's view gets, uh, it, it could help us describe uh, organ transplant cases pretty nicely, I think. Mm. Um, so, it, I think intuitively, uh, if, if a doctor takes one of my kidneys out of my body and is uh, transporting it to put it into your body, we identify it as the very same kidney, while it's in me, while it's in transit, and then while when you get it, yeah, there are problems with uptake and uh, often donated organ, transplanted organs are rejected and so on. But that's a somewhat different issue uh, of from the issue of whether it's the very same kidney the whole time. Right. Now, a unicity theorist of course has to deny this, that it's the very same kidney because once it's out of my body, it's just, it's not a kidney anymore. Whereas a view like SCOTUS's can accommodate this somewhat intuitive idea that no, what what you receive into your body really is my kidney. And so that's, and that would, that, I mean, that's part of why organ donation is, uh, has a kind of existential power to it because it's mm-hmm. so, like, well, a part of you lives in me and is helping me live. Uh, yeah. a, a Scotistic view about hylomorphism lets us uh, accommodate that intuition.
0: Yeah. And I, I have to imagine that, you know, we're just, we're, uh, we're laughing along through some of these, you know, implications and thought experiments. I have to imagine that these friars were doing something of the same. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, just uh you know, walking walking around the the Latin quarter of Paris, uh propounding all these crazy examples, going from yeah. lecture to lecture or lecture to yeah. refectory. Yeah. yeah. absolutely. Well, and and when your when your life as theirs was is uh revolves around religious practice and prayer and also lectures and study uh the it's just so natural for these two worlds to collide in a really powerful and fruitful way. And I think the the more that we keep in mind that someone like Scotus was spending so much time every day, praying, singing Psalms, being before the blessed sacrament, the the more we can appreciate just how important uh, these theological issues were to his, what might look like, totally independent philosophical theorizing.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's a question I have for you then is, do you see that it's like a a method question? Is that legitimate? Is it legitimate? I mean, not just historically, but do you see it as a viable way of approaching these ideas in the present, you know, that have the theological implications as so impactful upon philosophical inquiry?
1: That's a good question. I think I want to say two, two different, but compatible things. One one would be that for for the Catholic philosopher who has a prior commitment to the faith, uh, making sure that one's philosophical theorizing checks out with the articles of the faith is an important activity qua Catholic. As you as you know, there were you know in the thirteenth century there were these. Uh, these lovers of aristotle who thought that aristotle's philosophy his science his logic gave us such a powerful system that what what we really ought to do is kind of bracket our faith as we theorize and just do philosophy etc in the mode of aristotle and just hold these worlds as two different w- worlds and aquinas of course is the great champion of uh Criticizing this view and saying no, that the the truths of faith and the truths of reason have got to be compatible. Maybe we don't see right away how they are, but it's really important uh, that we not believe contradictions. (laughs) (laughs) So, in that sense, it's an important it's an important method for the Catholic philosopher qua Catholic. Now, the other thing I want to say is that uh, the truths that we know by faith are and I'm, and I mean this in full reverence, they're so wild that, that they, it's a, it's a kind of, the Catholic really is living in fairyland. Uh, really believes that the world is magical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, I say this in full seriousness. I mean, I'm not just, uh, this is, this is what I believe. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, uh, I think that the, the the truths of the faith give you a kind of a kind of inspiration for thinking through what might be possible. And this this sort of method, I think, is in principle open even to a non-believer, where by getting by being informed, so to speak, uh, by these wild ideas that, uh, have been delivered to us as Catholics, they can, they can inspire theorizing in, 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 in their own way, even if no one actually, even if the theorizer doesn't accept them, I I have in mind here some, uh, uh, secular philosophers I know who I, I won't name, but who, who, Really find it fruitful to think through the the full ramifications of Christian, distinctively Christian beliefs, because of the way in which they, I guess, open up insights into what might be logically possible uh, that 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 we might we might not otherwise see. You know, the Trinity is a great case here. I mean, that's what I was uh, just thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I don't think that. You know, P- Peter Geach uh, in the '60s developed mm-hmm. this idea of relative identity. I don't think that it really ultimately works, um, but he developed it almost surely as a part, in part at least, as a way of trying to explain how you could have three divine <laughs> persons who are who share exactly one and the same divine essence, uh, but are not strictly identical with each other. Right, we could we could talk about the the same F or the same G, but not altogether the same in every possible way. So it's a kind, of, uh, uh, it's a it's a philosophical theory of identity that would deny that you know Leibniz's law that we learn in logic is the authoritative uh, take on what identity is, and it opens up an alternative theory of identity that at least at first glance seems to do a better job at explaining the nature of the Trinity. Now, is that just rationalizing the faith? Well, no, I mean, that's not how the theory is presented. That's not how the theory gets developed um, by metaphysicians and logicians. It's not rationalizing the faith, but receiving this truth by faith and then trying to think through how it might make some rational sense can inspire these theories that can go off and have a life of their own. So in that sense, I think there is a methodological fruitfulness to letting, letting all the theology really ferment in the background of your philosophical theorizing.
0: And maybe just a similar question, but maybe more like not down to earth, but in the pew. So like, these theories of hylomorphism and, and the theological implications and questions of substantial form that are so rooted in a historical moment are is what of this, if anything, and I think there's much of it, but what of this is relevant to you know my life as I walk around or go to mass and home with family, go to work, um, or just the way in which I view the world and myself in community? So I guess it's the, the so what question. Mm-hmm. um is is there a i mean what's the answer to that to that yeah
1: that's good i i i do think it's really important and but i do think that you're right to talk about you know taking this down to the level of the pew that it's not it's not obvious how this would have any ramifications for how we live out our lives um outside of the the ivory tower but but i really do think it is important and here's why The basic hylomorphist understanding of of what a human being is, I think, accommodates the uh, best insights of those who would focus on our uh, subjective mental experiences as a really important clue to what we are, and also accommodates the best insights of those who would focus on our embodied nature or our animality uh, as having a, a, as being a clue to what we really are because the hylomorphist says we are not only material and we're not only souls. We are composite of matter and soul. We're not to be identified with either one. We're to be identified with the un- the unity. And so If we have that understanding of ourselves, we can avoid uh, a kind of Gnostic, you know, I'm really, what I am is really just everything that's going on at the level of phenomenon, and my body is not relevant. We can also avoid a view that would just reduce us to, you know, just pure physical stuff and uh, either explain away or ignore the fact that we have this inner uh, subjective life that does not fit well with a purely materialistic account of the universe. And so to, to understand myself as truly a rational animal, I, I really, I am an animal. I am in that sense, God's pet, but that's fine. That's what, that's what I am. But that's not, that, that isn't to say that I'm just a hunk of flesh because this flesh has been made to, to think and to love because of the kind of form that it's been given. Uh, and so I think that the payoff, and in this respect, uh, hylomorphists of all kinds, the unicity theorists who might side with Aquinas or the pluralists who might side with uh, Dunscotus, uh they're all on the same team at this level, at least, because they would all say the, the human person is to be identified with the human animal.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's, is like you're saying, it's a really, it's not just helpful, but I think accurate way of seeing ourselves um, as we are to a degree. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to not identify the soul, you know. I guess there you know there's the the characterization of the the ghost the machine impression and all of that, and thankfully we're not that mm-hmm. uh, so to emphasize our animality and and our being an ensouled animal of a, a particular kind, I think is really really um yeah holistically uh holistically i don't know I, I'm struggling to find the words of of how I see it as being accurate you know um, and I think the theological stuff at least for me that the the pluralist account at least for two substantial forms at least seems to coincide with a, a gut level intuition that you know if i go to my grandfather's funeral and i look in look in the casket that's really him not him in the fullest sense but that is his his Im- Im- embodied not self either um and again we fumble towards words and terminology um but i think a substantial uh, you know a pluralist account at least is, can correspond to that mm-hmm. that in, intuitive sense that there's something of him here yeah you know, i guess i would yeah, say
1: yeah. yeah this is the very the very body that that i would hug uh mm-hmm. when he was still alive and, right. and there and he's gone because the he what he was the unity of of soul and body and so grandpa in the fullest sense really is no longer here uh right. it's comforting that the the soul continues to exist, but it's also comforting that this very body is was his, was mm-hmm. his.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the, the. I don't want to use the word practical in a pejorative sense, but I think the practical importance of these philosophical and theological debates and and strings of terminology is that they help us grapple with reality that's presented to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as regards myself and others and you know, how we viscerally respond to moments of a loved one dying and, and, and all that. Um, so yeah, I guess that's just to say, I think it's important too. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good word.
1: Uh, Um, I I was thinking just, just now, as you were talking about your grandpa, I was, I was thinking about, uh, uh, the, the assumption of Mary. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, the, the one, one way of making theological sense of it is that it's, uh, that it it takes seriously Mary's being the mother of God. Mm -hmm. Um, And Christ wants to be with his mom, not like the soul of his mom. Right. Uh, And so that means bringing all of her (laughs) up to heaven with
0: him. That's Uh, a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think a a highly amorphous account really, makes me marvel at the assumption even more then, mm-hmm, Right. that exactly. she's the one that maintains this integrity. Yeah, um, I hadn't thought of just the, the sort of sun-like affection for her. So thanks for that. I appreciate <laughs> that. Thanks to Tom Ward for his time and insight into hylomorphism, especially in a scotistic key. I had a really good time talking to Tom, especially as we delved into considerations of the dismembered parts of the saints. Always a good time and a wonderful conversation starter. Please do check out Tom's work, which again, you can do by way of the show notes for this episode. And in a bittersweet kind of way, this wraps up our three-part series devoted to the great Franciscan philosopher-theologian John Dunn Scotus. I hope that, in its own small way, the series has increased awareness and appreciation for Scotus. I'm certainly grateful for the three guests that have made these episodes as interesting and enriching as they were, Sister Mary Beth Ingham, Justice Hunter, and today's guest, Tom Ward. We'll next pivot to a few episodes devoted to contemporary Catholic poetry, which though they won't be exhaustive, will at least take a glance at a few personalities of the present landscape of Catholic poets. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in.